0: You are back with The Conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. This is Katherine Cruz. During this health and economic crisis, FEMA, the Federal Emergency Management Agency, and its Hawaii counterpart, HAIMA, have been in daily contact. This morning we talked with Bob Fenton, head of FEMA's Region 9, covering the western region and the Pacific, about how it's managing the needs of the various island communities. It was also our first opportunity to talk with Luke Myers, the executive officer at the Hawaii Emergency Management Agency. We start with Myers.
1: From the state emergency operation perspective uh, in supporting uh, Director Hara and uh, Governor Ige, we we have a number of missions that we are working. We're very proud that the the, the public has uh, taken to the call of action to flatten the curve, which has uh, been very instrumental for the state of Hawaii. Uh, We we do have a number of of large missions that we continue to work uh, in support uh, with our federal partners. Uh, We have a, a federal incident management team here Uh, and the state partners and the private uh, and public sector partners. Um, One of the large ones uh, to your question was about the incident health facilities. Uh, The state had looked very carefully at larger alternate care facilities, isolation, quarantine, and alternate care sites. Um, As this incident has unfolded and we've we've flattened the curve in the uh, immediate term, we continue to work with federal partners on Uh, potentially building out those options. But at this time, uh, the impacts are that uh, we have other resources in place to kind of help manage uh, isolation and quarantine through each of the counties.
0: And we are hearing about the need for personal protective gear and test kits and reagents. I mean, uh, how are we sitting with all that?
1: Yeah, so one of the missions here at at the state emergency operations center uh, is logistics uh, we are the the main coordinating body in partnership with state department of health on getting commodities for this incident uh, we are working very closely with FEMA region 9 and hhs on larger ppe commodities that would come in and then we push those out right now uh, based on the demands that we're seeing for the healthcare industry here in hawaii Uh, we are meeting the needs uh, of those uh, essential actions. We do see that there is a a great need for industrial hygiene products, especially as we look to reopening and for those essential facilities uh, that are open at this time. So we've kind of looked at this through two lenses from the state emergency operations perspective. One is on the PPE and then those industrial hygiene products actually support the operations that are up and running.
0: And Bob Fenton, um, you have kind of a bird's eye view for this whole region. You know, where do you see the biggest demand right now?
2: Yeah, so I'd say right now the next thing that we will go into, especially as Lucas said, most of the states in our region have done a great job uh, of bending the curve, and that goes out to not only leadership, uh, you know, through the governors in our region, but the public. You know, the public's done a great job of protecting themselves, uh, staying uh, physically distanced, taking all the right steps uh, in this event to stop— you know, uh, the virus from continuing to uh, uh, move. So uh, because of that, the next step we're at is looking at, you know, what is reopening of the economies look like? And what we're working with is the governors across our region to put in place sufficient testing capabilities so that as you're able to reopen, you're able to test. And we just had a call with state public health uh, there in Hawaii and emergency management and CDC and a bunch of others to understand, you know, what is the capability there, what are the testing machines they use, Uh, what resources they need to uh, improve it, what's their plan, Uh, those kind of things. So we just started that discussion. To me, that's the next big thing we'll get into. I think Luke is exactly right. We've done a great job of building the contingency capability for medical support. Uh, PPE, we're uh, doing three different uh, focus areas of effort in PPE. One is we've created an air bridge for private companies to supply hospitals to move their stuff in and flown over 100 planes into the United States uh, with uh, stuff going directly to the hospitals in Hawaii. Uh, the second thing we've done is open up new manufacturing capability uh, and continue to do that uh, by getting FDA approvals both inside and outside the country. And the third thing we're doing is going after people that are hoarding uh, you know, or price gouging uh, with regard to PPE. So, uh, you know, I think we've built the medical capability. Uh, we're getting a handle on the PPE as more manufacturing comes up. The next thing will be do we have enough testing capability to make sure that we're testing as, we start to change the conditions uh, with regard to mitigation.
0: And can you give us a snapshot of where things are at? I know uh, Honolulu's mayor wants to increase the testing and wants to bring in uh, test kits that uh, I guess it's still unclear whether we've got the proper federal approvals to go with those types of tests. Luke, can you give us a handle on on where we're at with that?
1: So, As as Bob mentioned, we've just started the kind of a detailed process here in coordination with our federal partners uh, and State Department of Health on identifying the, the state testing strategy. Uh, the details on that are being uh, worked out this week, uh, in particular with Dr. Anderson and Dr. Park. Um, some more details to come on that. Obviously, uh, there are a lot of capabilities that we will need as we look to reopening, not only the individual islands, but inter-island and eventually larger travel from abo- abroad. But at this time, uh, that, that's a work in progress. Uh, we do understand that testing is, as Bob uh, mentioned, is the most important capability to kind of open up but also on the other side we need to ensure that we have the health capacity here to handle any potential clusters that may arise as we move forward. Obviously, this incident continues to evolve, and we need those capacities in place.
0: And Hawaii has, you know, certain challenges because it's, you know, geography. And, Bob, you've been out to Micronesia, Guam, Saipan, those areas. Their healthcare facilities maybe are not quite as robust as Honolulu's. Any thoughts on that?
3: Yeah,
2: it makes it much more complex. Just not only the um, long logistical lines to get there as far as you know, really, uh, air being the primary uh, resource we'd use. Uh, but, um, just the limited capability on those islands, so it was even more important on Guam and CNMI to build additional medical capability. Uh, obviously, on Guam, you had the complexity of the Teddy Roosevelt uh, going there. Why this event happened, and, and it's having its own issues with regard to uh, sailors contracting co- uh, COVID. So all those things play into the complexity, including uh, sending resources out to Micronesia, Marshall Islands when we dispense the strategic national stockpile there. The good news is the Micronesia, Marshall Islands have been pretty much COVID-free. Guam and CNMI has done a great job of uh, putting in uh, very strict uh, mitigation measures. uh, And basically, they've flattened their curve. And on uh, CNMI, I haven't seen a number go up in the last 10 days. So uh, very good uh, efforts there and leadership by both governors there. But we were ready by bringing in additional medical supplies. Obviously, we worked really close with Paycom. And Paycom would be a major force provider for medical augmentation Uh, in any of the islands of the Pacific, including Hawaii.
0: Has the military then been able to help support the local governments there as they deal with the aircraft carrier situation?
2: Yeah, not only are they taking care of their own situation and and using the hotels there to help physically distance their sailors, but uh, what they've done is they've deployed out personnel to be ready to assist for my medical capability uh, if needed. So in in Saipan, uh, they deployed six nurses over there, they have a testing team over there helping Saipan with its testing, uh, deploying some biologists over there. Um, and in Guam, we've deployed a, a team to provide technical assistance. Uh, we have ready uh, to go in coordination with uh, PACOM, additional medical resources if needed. Um, we continue to uh, you know watch the testing that goes on every day. We uh, are a partner with John Hopkins who does a lot of modeling with us and then we work very closely with uh, both of the medical teams in uh, Guam and CNMI to make sure that our modeling, our modeling and uh, uh, information matches uh, what they have so that we can predict uh, when the, the need may come or when there's rises uh, projected based on uh, new conditions. You
0: know, I just read something about how uh, two Samoas dealt with a pandemic way back in the early 1900s, and, and the strategy taken by American Samoa was a far more effective than, I think, Samoa when it was under New Zealand's control. But it was just fascinating to see, you know, you take these actions early and you can protect the island populations.
2: Yeah, I think uh, American Samoa is, uh, well, I know American Samoa is still the only U.S. state or territory that is uh, COVID-free, and uh, and I think a little bit of that is uh, early actions, but also, as you remember, they had a measles outbreak, uh, you know, late last year. So they were taking... Preventative actions from that. And I think they were able to then leverage that as they went into COVID and uh, stop the movement of COVID to uh, their island. Actually, I got a call with the American Smoke Governor a little bit later on today uh, to talk to him. And and much like every other state, we still issued him a uh, major declaration. And we have a team down there. uh, And we were also saying a team down there to increase their testing capability. But they've done a tremendous job. Of taking uh, measures early on to prevent uh, COVID from affecting them.
0: Probably everybody's in the same situation, you know, looking for more ventilators in the event uh, things do escalate. Are we providing enough equipment to those uh, smaller island communities? Yeah, not
2: only have we provided some ventilators out uh, ahead of time, but at this point, I track very closely the medical capability that exists as far as ventilators, uh, beds in use, ICU beds in use. And I have uh, very good visibility on a day-by-day basis we're sharing data back and forth like never before uh, so i can actually see real time what's happening there and then with the model and i can project and the strategic national stockpile uh, once we pushed it out initially we've rebuilt it and so that sits there and ready to use one of the things about this event is you know think of covid and and affecting the population is kind of a u-shaped curve meaning that you know, It started with just a couple people affected, and then it built, and it built, and it increased, and increased. And uh, not until we took mitigation member, uh, measures did that start to bend that curve. Well, uh, what we did is we went ahead, and as we, you know, everyone in the United States is at a different time uh, table as far as going into that curve. And if you remember early on, it was California, Washington, New York, and then, you know, other parts of the United States started going into that curve. So Hawaii, uh, Guam, and CNMI were some of the later ones to go into that, but they've done such a, a great job, like I said, not only the governors, their leadership, the mayors, but really the public uh, in ensuring that uh, they were able to bend that curve and, and really decrease the need for any major medical capability. We still stand by, we're still ready, uh, and now we've uh, you know been able to Um, purchase is turn on manufacturing and create more medical capacity
1: That if we uh, need it, it will be there.
0: And Luke, I don't know, have we seen any of the deficiencies in any of the medical supplies that we might be getting, let's say, from China?
1: Through our logistics section at the State EOC, we we have been trying to procure resources, obviously, through our federal partners. um, But here locally, obviously, trying to support uh, the local businesses and the economy here in Hawaii. Uh, We we have looked to some of our... uh, Uh, other countries uh, out to our West um, we necessarily haven't uh, seen any deficiencies here in the products but we are screening as our procurement is uh, actively trying to buy uh, PPE
0: and then how is FEMA looking at this uh, regional plan that some of the the states have as far as reopening
2: the president's put out uh, his four criteria for uh, reopening uh, government and uh, really the decision is uh down to each governor on how they will implement that uh, each state is geographically different with uh, different populations different cultures within it and all those things you need to be taken into account and where you are in that curve and the decisions they need to make and so that's why you know i kind of let off in the beginning is really you know when you ask me what's our priority our priority is to make sure that we have enough testing capability because as governors go to make those decisions What they're going to have to do is, and and I suspect that those decisions will be made, uh, you know, it won't be a complete return to normal. It will be a phased return, and as they do that, we still need to continue to make sure that we have not only the testing but the surveillance so that if COVID uh, does uh, uh, come up somewhere, that we're able to quickly isolate those people and contain it from not affecting a greater part of the population. And so all that leads to making sure that we have testing, uh, that we have surveillance and that there's a plan in place, especially for uh, island communities like Hawaii, uh, where uh, so much tourism comes in from overseas, you know, that we need to make sure that we have a very solid plan in place uh, and how that will work. And so what we want to make sure is that we understand, you know, what are the requirements, uh, what support does Hawaii need with that, and that we're able to bring in uh, those resources. Uh, to support their labs.
0: We have been talking with FEMA's Region 9 Administrator Bob Fenton and Haima's new Administrator Luke Myers about the approach to handling this pandemic across Pacific Island communities. It is now time to take a look at what's happening around the rest of the world. A lack of access to contraceptives could lead to a surge in unplanned pregnancies and a Southeast Asian official gets fined for breaking social
4: distancing rules. Here's the BBC with the latest headlines. This is the Coronavirus Global Update on Tuesday the 28th of April. I'm Nick Miles. The United Nations says the pandemic could cause a significant increase in unplanned pregnancies. And an international aid group warns that up to a billion people could become infected with the coronavirus if action isn't taken to help vulnerable countries. The United Nations Population Fund says the disruption caused by the coronavirus could lead to a rise in unintended pregnancies. John Johnson has the details.
5: The report shows the scale of the impact that Covid-19 could have on women's rights and health. If the lockdowns last for six months, it says, up to 47 million women in low- and middle-income countries will struggle to access contraception. This could lead to 7 million unintended pregnancies. And as women remain trapped at home, the UN body predicts cases of gender-based violence will
4: rise. There's a warning that the world could be facing up to a billion coronavirus infections if action isn't taken to help the most vulnerable countries. Modelling by the US-based relief agency, the International Rescue Committee estimates that up to 3.2 million people could die in poor countries or those affected by conflict. Austria is going further than many other countries in easing its lockdown. From this Friday, it's allowing all shops to reopen. Bethany Bell reports.
1: Austria's recommendations for people to stay at home, except for a few key reasons, expire at midnight on the 30th of April and won't be renewed. People will be free to leave their homes, although they'll still be asked to keep a metre apart. Working from home is still encouraged. Small shops have already reopened in Austria, with all shops to follow from the 1st of May.
4: Here in Britain, the health minister has insisted that the government is still on target towards its goal of carrying out 100,000 tests a day by the end of the week. Fewer than half that number were done on Monday. China has accused US politicians of telling lies after President Trump said Beijing could have stopped the coronavirus at its source. Without naming Mr Trump, a Chinese foreign ministry spokesman said US political leaders were trying to deflect attention from their own insufficient response to the outbreak. A senior Malaysian politician has been fined $230 for breaking coronavirus lockdown rules. Here's Michael Bristow. This is the Deputy Health
0: Minister, uh, Noor Azmi Ghazali, who went on an inspection to see health facilities to do with uh, COVID-19. But also on that particular trip, he uh, and a dozen other people went to a religious school where they all sat down and enjoyed a meal together. Now, the rest of the world might not have known about this had he not posted
4: pictures of this meal on his own Facebook page. He apologised and he said he would try not to uh, do it again. Mm Lithuania has announced plans to allow bars and restaurants to open in the capital, Vilnius, to use public streets and squares there for tables and chairs to allow physical distancing rules. Stephanie Prentice reports.
5: Known for its baroque architecture and cobbled streets, Vilnius has announced plans to turn central spaces into a vast open-air cafe, allowing businesses to operate while observing physical distancing rules by putting their tables outside. The Baltic state allowed cafes and restaurants with outdoor seating, as well as hairdressers and almost all shops to begin reopening this week as part of a staged exit from lockdown.
4: The organisers of the Tokyo Olympics have warned the Games will be cancelled if the coronavirus pandemic isn't brought under control by next year. Here's Alex Capstick. The message from the president of the organising committee, Yoshiro Mori, was very clear. There can be no more delays unless the virus is contained. The Tokyo Olympics will be scrapped. Moving it to 2022, he said, would not be possible. Serious doubts were also raised by the head of Japan's Medical Association, who said it would be exceedingly difficult to hold the event without finding a vaccine, which experts have suggested is still a long way off. And finally, what will your memories of lockdown be? Museums around Britain are trying to create an archive of how our daily routines have changed. As David Sillito reports, they want a record of everything from viral videos to photos of messy living rooms. This home recording of singers who found themselves suddenly out of work has already been earmarked for the British Film Institute's archives. So too have a number of Instagram posts and TikTok videos. The Museum From Home project is bringing together a number of institutions wanting to preserve images, films and objects that could easily be lost. Amongst them, the Museum of the Home, which wants photos of home life under lockdown, with one stipulation, you must not tidy up. This is the coronavirus global update.
0: This is the conversation on statewide member supported Hawaii Public Radio. Coming up, your backyard quiz.
1: Unihua, Ulehua. Unihao. Ukawa. Hua umulogahi.
4: Ulana.
1: Umau. Ukaholawe. Ohavae.
0: In today's Backyard Quiz, we revisit a feature film released in the 80s and shot in New York, Washington State, and on Hawaii Island. The plot? A federal investigator tracks down a woman accused of marrying rich men and poisoning them to collect the inheritance. Although the leads were well-known mainland actors, Hilo native and veteran actor Danny Kamikona was also cast in a small role as a detective. Several East Hawaii locations were featured. A storefront in old downtown Hilo was used as a private investigator's office. Hilo Intermediate School doubled as the exterior of a courthouse. And characters went on a hike inside Hawaii Volcanoes National Park. The thriller was directed by uh, Bob Rafelson, also known for classics like Five Easy Pieces and The Postman Always Rings Twice. It was also the on-screen debut of celebrated playwright uh, David um, Mamet. If you were to mention this film's title today, many would easily confuse it for a superhero movie set for release later this year. So what is the name of this movie? Call 941 or 877 941 If you think you know the answer, the first one to get it right gets our reusable tote bag that tells people you got it right.
6: Support for the Backyard Quiz comes from Locations, whose realtors and staff proudly support HPR's commitment to sharing stories of Hawaii's people and places. Locations, welcome home.
0: Contractors Association of Hawaii represents more than 500 companies across the state, making it the largest construction association. Cheryl Waldhall is the first female executive in its 88-year history. We talked with her about how the construction industry is preparing to ramp up as more shovel-ready projects get off the ground during this economic crisis. Uh, the GCA took out an ad in the Daily Paper pledging safety on the job during this pandemic.
5: No one wants to have an outbreak on the job site, so I think that's why the construction industry is really taking this responsibility seriously, that we're able to work through the coronavirus pandemic. And so construction companies across the state have taken additional safety measures that will help prevent the spread of the coronavirus. So some of the things that they're doing are having their workers come to work, everyone on the job site actually, wearing a mask, whether it's a cloth mask. Most of the people are wearing a cloth mask or um, even just a bandana so there's a covering over their nose and mouth. Some construction companies are even taking temperatures at the entrance to their job site, so making sure no one comes in with a fever. And definitely everyone's doing a really good job of communicating to their employees, anyone who's working on the job site, that if you're feeling sick or if you have the coronavirus symptoms, that you should stay home.
0: And I know initially, when all this was starting to snowball, you know, we were getting calls from listeners saying, well, gosh, there's somebody working on my street, and nobody's wearing masks, and why the disparity?
5: Right. Well, I think masks have just been introduced in the last couple of weeks, and, you know, the situation's been really fluid. In the very beginning, they were encouraging people not to wear masks, and then all of a sudden, it flip-flopped, so... It's a fluid situation and things are changing. There's also all different kinds of contractors. So we've got the really large general contractors that have 300 plus people on their job site all the way down to the mom and pop type of outfit where they've got maybe just a handful of people working on a project. So it it varies greatly.
0: If you're in a high rise, sometimes you've got trades that are kind of on top of each other. So how are you working on that issue?
5: So I think the large general contractors that are building the high-rises, there's really only three or four of them that have high-rise projects going right now. They are have taken extreme safety measures, so they're trying not to stack the trades. So they're having different trades work in different areas on the job site. They're definitely trying as much as possible to keep people working six feet apart, that's not always possible, Um, you know, just the nature of the job. So in the case that it's not possible, they're trying to limit the amount of time people have to be within six feet of each other, and they're making sure they're fully covered. So, you know, in addition to their standard safety gear, which is the hard hat, safety glasses, gloves, and, you know, head to toe covered with the long pants and the shoes and everything. They're also requiring that they wear a mask and or a face shield, which should help them keep protected during this point of the day that they must work closer together.
0: And I know a neighbor of mine said that uh, he is required to wear, you know, like a full-on respirator for eight hours on on, on his job site. Um, Oh, wow. Yeah, yeah, so, you know, it it does vary from job site to job site. Yeah,
5: I do know that um, some of the contractors ended up going with the respirators because they knew that the mask, we're going to be become an issue, and there would be a shortage of masks because the healthcare workers needed them. So there are definitely some jobs on a job site that do require that that N95 rated safety masks be used because of the nature of the work. So I think some of, in that those cases they went with respirators that can be just changed. So the filters can be changed out on those. How does it
0: work when you have construction unions? Are, are they requiring that the employer, that the contractors provide masks for the workers?
5: No, they're not. I think it's really the contractor's responsibility to ensure safety on their job sites. So the contractors are the ones asking people to come to work with their masks on, but the unions have been very supportive and they've, you know, encouraged their members to work safely and they've even given out their own safety advice on things that they should be doing. So, for example, for the operators, that if they're going to be using a different piece of equipment from what they were on, that they should sanitize the equipment they were on before they get off and then sanitize the new piece of equipment that they're getting on. So they're making sure that their own members are taking the right precautions to present. stay
0: safe. Anything else that you're seeing just on uh, future construction projects?
5: We're anticipating that the state is going to be deploying shovel-ready projects to keep the industry going. Right now is the best time to do some of that public work projects. DOE, the schools are empty, so why not dig into the backlog of R&M that needs to be done at the schools when there's no one there. That's the best time to work. There's no kids, no disruption. The roads projects and sewers, if there's not that many people out on the roads, there's less disruption, less traffic that's caused. So why not pave the busy streets, like, Baratania or Capiolani, Malachia Bishop, any road work on those streets causes major disruption. So now would be a great time to pave any busy streets, even, even the sewer work, you know, that's, that's, that can be very disruptive as well.
0: Right, the open trenching. Yeah, that's always yes. an issue with motorists. Yeah. Well, we have seen Hart try to escalate some of the utility work, you know, over there in the Dillingham area in Kapalama.
5: Yes, I think that's really great because that, you know, everybody was anticipating major disruption, on Dillingham. So the, the more they can do now, while it's not as busy, the better. Do we have a lot of construction workers that are uh, waiting for jobs to ramp up? Not that I know of. I think people, you know, the industry was already kind of busy. And so it's just kind of remained busy. Of course, it's different on Kauai, where uh, Mayor Kawakami did shut down commercial construction. But Otherwise, what I'm hearing is that people are still continuing to work and that the workers are feeling very grateful that they can continue to work and earn money and take care of their families and are not... Being put on unemployment like others in the service industry.
0: What about construction projects that are happening, let's say, uh, near or in somebody's building? Because as more people are staying home, they're probably getting very irritated at construction noise that might be going on uh, in their building.
5: Yeah, I did see an article about that, or, or and I, I think it was a letter to the editor. Certainly, um, it would be good if our industry could be mindful of that more people are at home right now.
0: There's got to be some maybe give and take.
5: Definitely. I think it's really important that the construction industry keeps working. There is a lot of people that work in construction and the supporting companies as well. And to the extent possible, this is what, you know, is going to keep our economy going. So I really think our industry knows how to work safely. Safety safety is always a top priority, um, you know, even before this happened. So they, they really can keep our economy going, and if work picks up, there's opportunity for other people to maybe change careers and join the construction industry. So I think that's something that some people who are currently in the service sector could think about and consider.
0: Okay, because you're going to need more hands on deck?
5: Yes, yeah, so definitely more hands on deck.
0: That was Cheryl Walthall, head of the General Contractors Association, talking about how both large and small companies plan to manage construction during this health crisis.
6: Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from PAR Hawaii, an energy company continuing to supply fuel to Hawaii's communities with a commitment to health and safety, parhawaii.com. This is Jose Fajardo, President and General Manager of Hawaii Public Radio, expressing my appreciation to everyone in our family of supporters, almost 15,000 strong, for making the station's work possible. Your loyalty and generosity helps us bring you the news and information programs that you rely on and the music that you love, especially at times like these when you need it the most. Your support benefits the entire community. So on behalf of all of us, mahalo.
0: Honolulu Civil Beat partners with us on a segment we call Reality Check. Editor Chad Blair joins us this morning with a story about how life in our schools has changed and may transform going forward. Good morning, Chad.
3: Hi, Catherine. Good morning to you.
0: So you have a story by Suvon Lee about uh, the hmm. snapshot going forward.
3: Right. And Suvon covers uh, public K-12 through mostly, but she's terrific. And what she did is she talked to a number of folks in the DOE to get a sense of, well, what's going to change. Uh, and the story basically says COVID-19 can be looked at as an opportunity to essentially tear up the playbook that we currently have in place, have had in place for a long time on how we approach schools. Remember, as we speak, there are 293 campuses statewide that are shut down for the rest of this school year, that is until uh, next month in May, and that means 180,000 students from K through 12 uh, are not able to have direct contact, at least in-person contact with their teachers, let alone each other. So Suvonne's article focus on, focuses on how this really has forced educators to shift very rapidly uh, to what she describes as new modes of instruction as well as how do you stay in contact with your students and parents when there's a pandemic going on.
0: Yeah, because all I think about is once we get back in the classroom, how do we do the distancing? I mean, are you going to have to hold classes outdoors, particularly with the classes maybe that are very large and overcrowded?
3: Yeah, that's something that at least one educator that uh, Suvan talked to said, look, maybe we had to look at smaller classes, maybe 10 to 15 students instead of 30. Maybe you need to have a more spacious uh, learning environment. We've already known a lot about discussing about having more access to uh, devices, you know iPads uh, and other laptops perhaps for remote learning so that is something you mentioned uh, distance here's an idea um, you may have to take temperature readings uh, when students get dropped off at school before they go in you may need to stagger the times in which the parents are dropping those kids off right you don't want having them all come at the same time you may want to have kids eating their lunch inside those classrooms where everybody has a desk that's six feet apart right rather than have re- Everybody gather in the cafeteria.
0: Yeah, I mean, what a change, right? I mean, everything from the physical part to just also the, the social part.
3: Right, exactly. And we should say the White House has advised on a number of things, including limiting field trips, which is too bad. That was my favorite part as yes. a student is going on a field trip. Uh, and, um, you know, but these are things that a lot of people are looking at. Do you stagger the school days? Is there a way to change the whole rhythm of the school year? Uh, there was one other uh person that Suvon spoke to, a fifth grade teacher, actually there were several others, but this particular fifth grade teacher on the Big Island quoted Dickens, of course, a school teacher quoting Dickens, this is the best of times, this is the worst of times. The good is that there is a stronger sense of community, right? We are all in this together, although there are disagreements on how well some of us are going to come out of this together. But the bad, of course, is that uh, the health, the environmental situation has been traumatic, let alone the economic challenges. But again, distress, can we look at this as an opportunity rather than just to be per, um, you know, paralyzed in terms of not being able to move forward?
0: And I just think about these concepts that we had and have talked about for eons Small classroom size, mm, right. uh, staggered work days, and, you know, how do you make that work? How do you get the unions to buy in? How do you get the, <sighs> yeah. the teachers' union to, to to look at this different structure?
3: Well, hanging over all this, of course, was Governor Ige suggesting last week that there'd be a 20 percent pay cut for teachers, and that upset you mentioned the union. The HSTA is not happy about that at all. Suvon did talk to one DOE teacher, who actually lived through the furlough Fridays. Remember that back yes. under the was it 2009 with Governor Lingle, and she had planned to work another seven years. But if if there's going to be a 20 percent pay cut, well, gee, maybe she's going to retire in two years. This all comes, speaking of long-standing problems, as we have an annual teacher shortage. Of one thousand teachers every year. That's how much we fall short and have to make up with, part time or temp workers and in in other ways.
0: Yeah, we we often see at the end of the year how a lot of teachers do retire. A lot of educators decide to hang it up, and this might be, uh, the thing that uh, prompts more of them to do that.
3: Yeah. One other thing I would add, uh, a school psychologist said, you know, we really need to look at new ways of dealing with trauma, uh, and that you know, school isn't just about learning; it's about Uh, socializing it's emotional it's behavioral there's a lot of components maybe one lawmaker or rather legislator (laughs) let me get that right one teacher said maybe we need to have wraparound services for mental health that may be very important going forward
0: yeah the best of times the worst of times and we've seen the best and worst of a lot of people out there (laughs) 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 thanks so much chad thanks Catherine. that was political and opinion editor chad blair with today's reality check uh read suban lee's story uh today online at civilbeat.org
6: Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from the Honolulu Museum of Art with a mission to create transformative experiences through art and committed to standing with the community during this time. Updates on reopening at honolulumuseum.org. I'm Stephen Dubner. On the next Freakonomics Radio, will COVID-19 spark a cold war
1: or worse with China?
4: I think it's very clear that mishandling of the early crisis significantly increased the price that every other country of the world is going to pay.
1: The U.S. spent the last few decades waiting for China to act like the global citizen it said it wanted to be. The wait may be over. That's next time on Freakonomics Radio.
6: Tonight at 7, following Counterspin... Support for the conversation comes from PBS Hawaii. Insights at PBS Hawaii features a live discussion of the effects of COVID-19 in Hawaii, 8 p.m. this Thursday, pbshawaii.org.
0: For today's quiz, we threw it back over 30 years to a film that's been a significant part of its shoot on the Big Island. It starred Deborah Winger in the role of an FBI agent tracking down a gold-digging woman, played by Teresa Russell. She's suspected of moving from husband to husband to kill them and take their money. Acting veterans Dennis Hopper, James Hong, and Diane Ladd all played supporting roles. You may recognize several East Hawaii landmarks in the frame, the lava fields of Hawaii Volcanoes National Park. There were classic columns fronting Hilo Intermediate School, which provided the perfect backdrop for the outside of a court. Room. And the storefront in downtown Hilo, used as a PI's office back then, is a rest- restorative massage clinic today. Now, the small movie made a profit after its release, but nothing close to what's expected from the Marvel film with the same name, slated for release later this year. The movie that we we're talking about is the 1987. Black Widow, and congratulations to Rick from Waimea on the Big Island, who shares that he saw the movie within the past year, so he knew the answer. That's today's quiz. If you have one, send it to talkback at org. Well, Mother's Day flower sales are a go after a red-light, green-light snafu with the state administration on this issue. The Hawaii Farm Bureau has had to pivot to support its members to find ways to sell products from local vegetable and flower farmers as well as beef, pork, and seafood producers. We talked to Brian Miyamoto about the success with the farm-to-car concept and the chance to buy local products to support our community.
7: You know, our general manager, Megan Kono, you know, came up with this great idea. You know, what if we do like a, a drive through online? And in fact, our kale farmer's market out in Kona um, had already started that process. And so, you know, Megan did some research, looked across the nation, see what others were doing and came up with, a, you know, we came up the Farm to Car program, which was essentially an online farmer's market, allow our farmers to continue to sell. Most of them are small farmers and continue to generate an income. They need capital in order to continue farming and continue ranching. And that's what the Farm to Car program is allowing them to. So April 1st was our first Farm to Car, uh, the Wednesday, April 1st. Start off with 200 bags, uh, 200 orders. There's a lot of uh, work that goes into it. It's custom order, it's custom order. So you know, the city, County, the mayor had stepped in and, and said, we're going to support this. Uh, they've been extremely gracious as hosts and as sponsors. Alexander Baldwin, you know, Hawaiian Electric Donating Bags, American Savings Donating Bags, Department of Agriculture, some of our larger ag companies here, Bayer and Corteva. There's so many that have stepped up and actually says, we want to support this. Ulupono has been with us throughout this crisis. So it's allowing them to kind of underwrite some of the expenses. And then we, we, we weren't sure what what's going to look like the first the car, even on the 1st, and uh, while we're doing that press conference with the mayor, Megan is just monitoring it, and and that's when we first announced the website, and within a minute, I think 50 people had signed up, and as I'm talking, it goes up to 100, and then by the time we're done with the press conference, we're up to a couple of hundred people had signed up already. So the first one, we capped it at 200. We weren't sure what we could manage. We wanted to manage our growth And the response has been overwhelming. So after, I think, uh, two weeks, we decided to do a a second day, and we've upped the individual days from 200 orders to 300 orders, which is pretty much our max right now.
0: And so how is it working on the neighbor islands?
7: On Kauai, you know, it's a little bit slower. They're trying something similar, but I understand in Kona it's doing really well. They're not using the exact same program we are, but... Their program, their first weekend, they sold out very quickly. The Customers extremely happy. Again, you're getting the freshest, most nutritious local produce. You know, so it, it's working. It, it again, it's it's a piece of the puzzle, along with CSAs, along with other organizations like Farm Link and Oahu Fresh, which are doing home deliveries. Concept is the same, helping the farmers sell their product because now, the markets have shut. down. Many have shut down.
0: Now, at these farmer's markets, you also feature flower farms.
7: They are struggling. Uh, we still have physical farmer's markets that are open, so they're being able to sell there. But, you know, a lot of the florists have shut down. I, I'm glad to hear that for Mother's Day, they're ought, they, they are going to allow delivery. So our nursery growers are going to be able to sell to these florists or sell direct. Specifically for Mother's Day, but uh, there's no doubt our nursery growers are are struggling. I just presented to the House Select Committee and talked about our nursery growers and how you know the products that provide that they provide you know really helps Hawaii, helps our economy, but also helps our people, our residents here. You know, it's it's emotional support. People, everybody wants flowers, and in fact, when I was um, presenting to the committee and speaker psyche he's the chair of one of the co-chairs of the committee i can see him on zoom and right behind him he's got two orchid plants you know funerals and funeral services not in the the way they were done before the big gatherings but cemeteries they're still open still part of critical essential businesses and so people still want to buy nursery products so we've been trying to work with the administration even at the national level because we know across the nation uh, nursery growers flower growers and, and florists are struggling because of this crisis that we're in. So, right. We,
0: we normally would be in the thick of things with graduations, proms, weddings, and everything's just been put on pause or canceled.
7: Absolutely. All of those things. I mean, right now, spring is the time we're heading to, you, you hit it on the nose, graduation, Mother's Day, proms, uh, You know, just everyday business for, for these, these growers. So what we're hoping, what we're really hoping is, you know, with the the, the federal relief, the $19 billion that that was just announced by the Secretary of Agriculture, the $9.5 billion out of the, the first version of the CARES Act, we're hoping that nursery growers will be included in being able to recover some of the losses of business that some other commodities are able to take advantage of. We really need to, you know, help our nursery growers. They're all part of agriculture. I mean, people come, they, they associate our, our flowers with Hawaii, you know, getting a flower lay when you land, you know, as a tourist. So yeah, we really need to do whatever we can to ensure that our nursery growers, our flower growers can continue their businesses. I mean, we hate to see this critical segment and sector of agriculture disappear.
0: And uh, can you talk exports? What's happening on that scene?
7: A lot of our export commodities are are struggling papayas for example on Hawaii island they grow a lot of papayas for export to japan to canada and to the mainland u.s and not only have has the market you know um gone down a little bit just from the demand side but because the planes aren't flying so we we were finding that we have a lot of certain commodities that are exported pineapples papayas so we're trying to bring some of those papayas that are on Hawaii island that they can't sell to their local residents Here to Oahu, where we do have a larger population, macadamia nuts, coffee, they're they're seeing a little bit of challenge. Uh, Macadamia nuts not only for export, but also with the tourists not coming in, a lot of the tourists will buy, you know, at, at, at the ABC stores or in tourist destinations, even locals. You know, when I travel, a lot of times I'll take... You know our iconic Kona coffee, Kau coffee, Kauai coffee, and macadamia nuts up is Omiyagi. Yes, absolutely. So a lot of these commodities are struggling. Another one that people aren't really aware of is is our herb industry. You know Thai basil. We've got a lot of herbs that are shipped on the commercial planes because we don't really have quote unquote cargo planes. They'll go out in passenger planes as cargo. about a 30 million dollar industry so our herb growers are really struggling most of their crop was going out on united which has recently reduced their flights to one a day and they weren't just going to the west coast and then freight forwarded out there they were going direct to certain cities that a lot of our our, um our domestic flights were going to so you know again we've been you know working with the administration working with our legislators working with our congressional delegation letting them know what the challenges are and, and what we can do, you know, conversations with Hawaiian Airlines who are, who's flying more than most other carriers. And, you know, we started those conversations, Try to connect the commodities, and, and you know, um, everyone's got to do their part to, to try to find solutions during this, you know, this, this terrible crisis.
0: Now, uh, as far as uh, our local meat uh, industry, what's your take on what's going to happen locally?
7: You know, we, we still have a pork industry here. We have our, our cattle industry here. Um, we know that you know there's there's supplies still here, so but as everyone as you're, you're saying, you know you see the news and a lot of these larger plants Tyson and the South Dakota plant uh because of um you know the coronavirus they are they are shutting down, so I believe we we may see i i won't say we will because there's a lot of stuff that's that's already been processed it's frozen. We may see a reduction in some of those products those uh, uh proteins coming in so you know, we're really uh, going to depend on our local producers here. Uh, they're trying to ramp up their production uh, or the processing. So I even talked to some of our hog farmers, and they do have whole hogs. So it's just a matter of, of putting more through processing and getting the, the local stuff available. And, again, the positive is it, 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 it exposes, so to speak, uh, Hawaii residents to more of the local products and the great local products that we have. And we'd you know, we love to see it an increase it in, in purchasing and demand for our great local, you know, produce and, and meats and value-added products, all these products that our farmers and ranchers and aquacultures are growing for, you know, our, our residents here in Hawaii.
0: That was Brian Miyamoto, head of the Hawaii Farm Bureau, encouraging residents across the state to buy local and support our homegrown vegetable, fruit and flower farmers, as well as our beef and um pork uh, and seafood producers. Uh, The flour industry will be able to sell and deliver products starting uh, Friday, May 1st, just in time for the upcoming Mother's Day holiday. That wraps it up for today. Tomorrow, we talk U.S. and China relations as everyone scrambles for personal protective equipment and test kits. We would like to hear from you. Are there college students out there struggling with the time differences overseas as everyone tries to keep up with online classes? Call or talk back line at 808-792-8217. You can also email us at talkback at hoypublicradio.org. Post your comments on Facebook at the Conversation HPR or tweet us at HI Conversation. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us tomorrow, won't you, for more of the conversation.